0: I don't think I mentioned if you want to order a shirt if you want to represent then go to the same place that you went to to register to be here so if you're here you should know how to get there because you should have registered Uh, if not I think there's like a QR code at the door you can scan that and that takes you um, to the place to register for these events and to register for uh, the shirt to get a shirt Uh, Also, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but praise the Lord that uh, he has given uh, the churches in our county favor and has allowed uh, through the Supreme Court, through the the courts and everything to let these churches in Santa Clara County to meet. So praise God. Amen. Amen. Dear sister churches like Trinity Bible Church in um, Morgan Hill and uh, Orchard Church in Campbell. These dear sister churches have been suffering because they have not been meeting for the past year because they're in this litigation and trying to win these cases on our behalf. Really, I mean, they're, they are representing us in a sense and trying to just plant a stake in the ground, uh, put a flag there, and say, we, we will meet, we must meet. And praise God that he, he has allowed them to meet. I know that they are all joyful this morning. They're probably just uh, just so excited to gather with the saints. Finally, I, I can't imagine having not, to not have met for the past year. Such a severe trial. But we praise God, we worship, we, we worship Him, and we rejoice with them. This morning we're, we're beginning our series through the book of Exodus. I want to read first chapter. We're going to be looking at the first chapter this morning. By God's grace, we're going to try and get through this thing. Beginning in verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers in all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and and, and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, The people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and brick and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously impose on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other was named Puah. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birthstool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Title of this sermon is Tyranny and Power. Tyranny and Power. I've entitled this series, Through Exodus, and we could just say Exodus, right, is the name of the series, but the title of the series overall is Meet Your Redeemer. Meet Your Redeemer. Redemption, this language of redeemer and redemption, is introduced in the book of Exodus, and in the book of Exodus, where we, along with Israel, are introduced to their Redeemer. They meet him first, uh, Moses meets him first at uh, the burning bush, and then they meet him Again, for the first time as a nation at the foot of Mount Sinai. So a lot of introductions to this God as the Redeemer. That's why the title is Meet Your Redeemer. But this sermon is entitled Tyranny and Power. We're going to see this morning the tyranny of evil and the power of God. The tyranny of evil and the power of God. And I desire this morning, dear saints, that you would remember what god saved you from the tyranny of sin and evil that you were enslaved to and that god rescued you from that by his great power now exodus the book exodus continues the story of the history of the world it's the second book in the bible second book of moses after genesis Genesis introduces us to God in verse 1 of chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? So it starts the story of history. And these aren't fables. These are historical events beginning in Genesis 1 through Exodus and on. These are historical events. And Exodus is just continuing the historical account of the world. And so it's for us to set the stage well for the book of Exodus before we go into the into the book, we need to remember at least the general flow of Genesis so that we can pick up in, in Exodus one, because we're introduced to the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt. Who are these people? We've got to figure out what's being spoken about here. So Genesis 1. Genesis 1. God created the heavens and the earth and mankind. But mankind rebelled against God and fell into sin, destroying all of mankind's relationship with their creator. This is the reality that we live in today. Our relationship with our creator is destroyed, But Genesis goes on to describe this widespread, pervasive, destructive nature of sin in the whole human race. If you can just sum up Genesis 3 through Genesis 11 in a nutshell, that's it. It's just the corruption and the widespread, pervasive, destructive nature of sin taking its toll on the whole human race but in genesis 12 the focus from the whole human race is narrowed to a man a man named abraham or abram and his name was later changed to abraham this man abraham was chosen by god and god made a promise to this man abraham This promise had three layers to it. One, that Abraham would have a massive family that would become a nation of countless descendants. Two, is that God would give that nation their own land to dwell in with him. And three, that God would use Abraham's offspring to bless all the nations, not just his family, not just his nation. So Abraham received these promises of a great nation, many descendants, uh, a land to be their own, to dwell with God, and that they would be used as a conduit of God's blessing to the whole world, to all of mankind. Because remember, all of mankind's relationship with God is destroyed presently. And so through this family, that destruction of sin would be reversed and man could once again dwell with God. God renewed these promises, this Abrahamic covenant, to each new generation after Abraham. And the rest of Genesis is is really simply God upholding that promise, his threefold promise from father to son to son. From Abraham to his son Isaac to his son Jacob. That's really the, the, the flow, the direction of Genesis. And so, we've studied Jacob as a church recently, if you remember back uh, the first week of this year. We remember that Jacob, his name was changed to Israel in Genesis 32. Remember that? Jacob slash Israel, it's the same person. This man, Jacob Israel, went on to have 12 sons. Now, in those days, there was a, a massive famine in the land. Nobody could grow food, nobody could buy food. It was, it was, it was terrible. People were, were, were passing away and dying at an alarming rate. And it seemed like this family, like, like Jacob, Israel's family, along with his 12 sons, would just be part of that casualty of the famine. It seemed like the, that this family would die. This family that God made a covenant to would, would all pass away, and God's promises would pass away along with them. However, in Genesis, God already had a plan. One of the 12 sons of Israel was named Joseph. And Joseph, through providential acts of God, Joseph was in this massive kingdom named Egypt. And he had a position of authority in that kingdom. And he had the ability to save Jacob, Israel's family, from certain death because of this famine. So you see God working through these generations and using Joseph to preserve this promise that he initially made to Abraham. You'll have a great nation, innumerable descendants, your own land, and I'll use you to bless the world. God upholds that promise through Genesis. That brings us to Exodus 1, verse 1 through 5. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So remember, this family goes to Egypt with their father, the patriarch, Jacob, Israel, and all of their families came, all of these men, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, and so on, all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, it says in verse 5, and Moses was already in Egypt, in that place of authority, in that place where he could save this family and preserve the promise of God. Moses here, the way he begins this book of Exodus, uh, it's, it's not the most natural way you would start a book. Right? If you're trying to tell a story. It seems like he's in the middle of something. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. It seems like we should already know who Jacob is and his sons are and where Egypt is and the significance of these things. That's why we wanted to introduce uh, this storyline through Genesis to you so that you're at least a little bit up to speed. Now... Jacob, Israel, all his sons, they all came to Egypt because of the famine. And the names of the 12 sons are listed here. With their, and them along with their wives and their children, all together were 70 of them. Just 70. That's it. Now, remember that God's promise to Abraham that is that I'm going to make you a great nation and you will have so many descendants that it will be... Uh, innumerable. You won't be able to count them. So how is this going to happen with just 70 people? Well, verse 6 and 7 explain to us, Joseph died, all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. You see, Joseph and all his brothers, that whole generation, they died. They they didn't live long enough to see their family become that nation that God promised to their forefather, Abraham. But we see here already, God is starting to fulfill his promise. He is showing that he's not done. Uh, They're described here, they're, they're, they're named here, the sons of Israel. Verse 7, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. The sons of Israel was the name given to the whole family, the whole nation, not just the 12. Now, this has gone beyond those 12 sons of Israel. And that title is now one that is used to describe the whole nation, all of the descendants of Jacob. Slash Israel. Now, it says here that be, they became mighty. Now, this 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 might was not their physical power, but in their numbers. There was their, their strength was in their numbers. It says that they were fruitful, that they increased greatly, they multiplied, they were exceedingly mighty. These are all interconnected wording. It is this, that their numbers became so much that they automatically had a large influence. They had great clout, you could say, in the land. Their actions had sway or weight in Egypt, even though they were not Egyptians. You see, their numbers and that, that power, that influence became a problem. The to the king of Egypt. Verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So, you see, there's this new king. And the way he's described is that he didn't know Joseph. The point is that this Pharaoh, this new king over Egypt, did not have the kind of relationship that the previous Pharaoh, the previous king, had with Joseph. Things changed. Now, Genesis 47. At the beginning there of the chapter in Genesis 47, we, we see that the previous Pharaoh, the previous king, was very kind to Joseph, very kind to that family, very kind to Jacob, Israel, and his sons. In fact, when they came, remember they all came to Egypt because of the famine to, so that they can survive and not die? When they came, the king, the Pharaoh... He let them choose where they would live. And then he gave them the best real estate in that land. And not only that, but he hired them onto the best jobs available. You see that God's grace and favor upon this family was was evident in the way that this pagan king treated this family. But years went by and generations came and went and this new pharaoh was not like that old one. Now this, this pharaoh, is actually the polar opposite from the past one. This new pharaoh sees the family of Israel as a threat. A threat to be neutralized. Not a people that you just kind of give whatever they want to. So, what does he do? He sends out an announcement to all of Egypt. He says, you know, these Israelites, they're they're a threat. There's just too many of them. If they link up with our enemies, we're doomed. Notice that Pharaoh says, let us act wisely. Let us act shrewdly with them. In verse 10, come, let us deal wisely. Let's really think about how to deal with these people. We can't just kill them all because then our workforce is gone. We can't just kick them out because then they'll just join up with our enemies and conquer us because there's so many of them. So let's act wisely. Notice the wisdom of this evil tyrant Notice the wisdom of evil. Verse 11. Here's how he carries out, let us deal wisely with them. So, they appointed, verse 11, they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. This is how the wisdom of evil is carried out, in harshness and cruelty. So what do they do? They place taskmasters, they place these rulers over the Israelites, over the sons of Israel. And, and literally, when it says that they uh, afflicted them, it, it means that they pressed down on them. This word is to force them into a humble state. And it's often used in Scripture to to weaken somebody's very soul. This is the way that evil works. It is oppressive. It attacks the very soul of men and women. It forces them into a humble and cast-down, depressed state. But did it work? Did it work? Verse 12. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Man, that's amazing. So despite being oppressed, despite being afflicted, the sons of Israel continued to multiply and to spread out. You see, God still kept his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So much so that the Egyptians began to dread the Israelites. Better translated, instead of dread is to abhor or to loathe, or to despise. It's not so much that they were afraid of them, but that they hated the sons of Israel. So, the Egyptians, what does evil do? It doubles down. Verse 13, The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. When it says that they were compelled, they compelled the sons of Israel to labor. when When it says compelled, it doesn't mean that they made a good compelling argument that the Israelites should work like this and be subjected to this kind of treatment. its not what it means. It, It is that they forced them to serve. This is slavery. And it's evil. When it says that they were forced or compelled to labor rigorously, That labor rigorously is really one word, and it just means severity or violence. So literally, you could say that the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites to severity. And it got so bad, it got so bad that they made the Israelites' lives bitter because of the severe work that they were forced to do life became bitter for them think about that if life is bitter then what sweet death these people god's people were so mistreated so violently oppressed that death was sweeter than life. This is evil. To get a person to that point where they view death as a relief to the pains of this world is evil. Now let's step back for a moment because this book Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that work of Moses, these books, who are they written for? Well, of course, for us, for all the generations, but immediately, Moses wrote them, Moses wrote Exodus to the children of those who were saved from Egypt. Spoiler alert, these people that are oppressed eventually get saved out of that oppression, out of that slavery, and God delivers them out of that, okay? If you didn't know, I'm sorry. That's where the story's going. But when they are delivered from that, they spend some time in the wilderness, and they deal with God, and God deals with them, and they all, this whole generation that is subjected to this and is saved from Egypt, they all died, but they have children out there in the wilderness. And Remember, the whole point is to make them a nation and give them a land. So that's where they're going. They're going with God to that land, to Canaan. And so as God is on his, on his way to make fulfilling his promise, there is this new generation later on that grows up in the wilderness, didn't go really through the stuff of Exodus, where they weren't slaves. They were born free men and free women, But they had this task of going into that land. That is the generation that this was written to. To a generation that did not experience this, but just kind of grew up free, but had a, a colossal task in front of them to go into this foreign land and to set up their home there, even though there are other people that would fight against them. And to this generation, later on in Deuteronomy 5.15, God says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God did not want these people to forget where he saved them from, and so he says, remember. The events of Exodus are brought up in remembrance throughout the rest of Israel's history and generations, even on into the New Testament. Now, the, the oppression, the slavery, and the deliverance from tyranny were all real events that happened to real people, okay? But God makes it clear in Scripture that these events and these details of the exodus and their slavery were all pointing to something greater. They're all pointing towards a greater slavery, a greater oppression. But that there would also be a greater deliverance from that tyranny. Romans 6:12. Romans 6:12 says that sin reigns over the unbeliever. In verse 14 of Romans 6, sin is called the master of the sinner. And in verse 16 and 17, the unbeliever is called a slave of sin. Jesus said himself, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And 2 Peter 2.19 states that to be a slave of sin is to be a slave of corruption. And that the corruption of sin overcomes the sinner so that he is enslaved. Now, that's all of us. We are all born sinners. We are all born slaves of sin. And with sin as a master, the sinner is bound to a life that can only be described as bitter slavery. Friend, if you don't know the Lord this morning, this is a wake-up call. Your life is bitter slavery. Isn't it? All sin is this way. It presses you down. It weakens your very soul. Like Pharaoh and the Egyptians did to the Israelites. But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to enslave you to severity. Things like enslavement to alcohol. Sexual immorality, drugs, anger, resentment, and even the praise of men, even your own pride, is sin. And it enslaves you. You see, the the passing pleasures of sin leave you just wanting more. And not just wanting more, needing more. More. It's never enough, is it? Is it? Your sin is never enough. What used to bring excitement is now dull. And so you have to plunge deeper and deeper into the corruption of sin. Don't you see, friend, that you are enslaved? You're so enslaved to more and more sin, all the while getting less and less satisfaction. That is bitter enslavement. That is the state of all of us without Christ. But in Luke 4.18, Jesus says in his, you could say, inaugural sermon, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He appointed me or anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set free those who are oppressed. You see, you're oppressed right now, friend. And Christ has come to set you free from the bondage of sin. Sin will keep on inflicting you to the point of death. That's all it does. That's all it leads to. The wages, the paycheck of sin is death, eternal death. But Christ has come to set free those who are oppressed. And he says in John eight thirty one, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Now, We need to stop there. I think that's good enough. Next week we'll see the power of God on display. How he overrides the power of sin and evil. And it's seen in these two women. He uses these two women as conduits of his power and grace. We'll see how that is just a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But rest assured, like sin, Pharaoh didn't just stop at making life bitter. He went on to murder and to death. That's what sin does. It doesn't want to just make your life lousy. It wants to kill you eternally and cast you into eternal judgment, eternal death in hell. That's the goal of sin and evil. But yet, in the midst of that evil, we see the power of God and how He sends His Son to deliver His people from the tyranny of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You, and we thank You, Lord, for not leaving us there under the, the chains and the bondage of sin. Oh, Lord, we deserved it. We liked it there, if we're honest. We weren't trying to get out. We didn't know that we were in bondage until you turned on the light and showed us. And so we thank you, Lord, for saving us and delivering us in Christ. Oh God, may we live for you. And may we be mouthpieces that are declaring freedom in Christ. And Lord, may we may we never lose sight, may we never forget what you saved us out of. And as we remember our chains, as we remember the bondage of sin, may that make the gospel of Jesus Christ all the more sweeter. May that make our worship all the greater and sweeter for our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.